Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation that you and I did with Heidi Julevitz about her new book, Directions to Myself, a memoir of four years. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really loved the book. Yes, I did too. I loved Heidi's last book, The Folded Clock, so much. And this book has a lot of the same elements of bringing in her daily life, but really like asking much larger questions about life and being philosophical while also being kind of rooted in the everyday and also being really funny, like hilarious and so smart. Yeah, it's a lot about mothering and mothering a son. So I guess I related to it on that level. And a lot of her fears are my fears about who my son will become based on what he's like now and misogyny. Like, can I avoid him being a misogynist? Is he already one? You know, like, will he be a murderer? Like one of every 10 men are. One of every 10? <laughs> no, that's no. Just my, no, I'm just kidding. That's just my figure. That's just my, uh, it's just my figure. I don't think that's a statistically uh, sound, but it's from my experience. Anyway, yeah, those are the questions uh, I, I deal with. And it's, it's really great to read someone else grappling with them and grappling with them so intelligently and with humor too, because I love to laugh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. One of my favorite passages in this book that I don't know if we talked about, but there's a writer that she's that Heidi's spending some time with, and he talks about how you shouldn't have any children if you're going to be a writer because they eat up all your creative time. And then she starts to sort of crunch the numbers in terms of how much time he probably spends eating and sleeping, which she actually doesn't really spend that much time doing because she has children. And so in the end, it it actually turns out that he's probably cost himself much more writing time just by the indulgences of eating and sleeping, whereas she's probably saved a lot of time by actually having children. And I thought this whole passage was like ingenious and so funny. And the whole book is smart like that. And, you know, I don't want to say it's in, the only reason why I'd say it's intuitive is because I feel like she articulates a lot of the thoughts that I, I have that I think I've never fully articulated to myself. And it's like so, so fun and striking to see them like on a page and belonging to such a wonderful person. Such a lovely person. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I think she comes across in her book as a, a pretty like lovable, wonderful person. And, and then she was also like very lovely uh, to speak with in real life. She was. Yeah. Should I do the amendment? Should yeah. I, I got an email from her, I should say, where she wanted to amend one of her answers and to talk a little bit more about what she is doing next. And I'm just going to read what she wrote. The next book is about a dead French actress whose estate I bought on eBay, as well as a joint suicide by two older people on my peninsula who sent their explanation to the local paper. And so is about death, but also objects. And how do people die more humanely? And how does that extend to their things? So that's an amended answer from Heidi Julewitz. Sounds amazing. Ooh, can't wait for that one. What would I do to go through a French actress's estate? Almost anything. <laughs> like, well, I hope you get that opportunity one day. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and in the meantime, let's listen to us talk about this most recent book, Directions to Myself. Yeah, let's do it. Great. To 
Today, we're joined by author Heidi Julevitz, whose new book is called Directions to Myself, a memoir of four years. Heidi Julevitz is also the author of The Folded Clock, A Diary, as well as four novels, including The Vanishers and The Uses of Enchantment. She teaches creative writing at Columbia University. In Directions to Myself, Heidi returns to her own life, specifically her relationship to her pre-adolescent son, whose childhood is nearly at an end. After a student at her university accuses another of rape, she begins to wonder about how a mother is supposed to steer her son as he grows into a man. How can a parent guide and form who their child becomes? How much of our personhood is nature, nurture, or culture? She looks back at her own childhood, growing up in Maine, and the lessons and stories she heard from her own parents. The book works through Julevitz's own private thoughts and heartaches, but always leads back to bigger questions about the time we live in, the way we think about justice and punishment, and how we form ourselves as people. Heidi Julevitz, welcome to the show. So, hi. I was thinking we could start, you know, I often ask this, but and not that I'm not always interested, but in this case, I'm really am especially interested in how you were conceiving of this book while working on it and kind of what you imagined it being and why maybe writing it as nonfiction was part of the project, you know, maybe was serving the project for you better than, let's say, a novel. So maybe I'll start with the last part of that question first, because I've been thinking about this a lot recently, you know. I am a novelist, I guess. When I look at my bio sometimes, though, these days, I'm surprised when people say, Heidi Julevitz, novelist, because I think, well, I haven't written a novel since like 2012. And which is not to say that I am not still a novelist, because I definitely feel like all of this work in nonfiction, I feel like I'm doing it in service of being able to write a novel again. But I'll confess that I got myself into a place as a novel writer where I so, so, so desperately wanted to free myself from plot. And somehow, every time I would sit down to write a piece of fiction, I would just get sucked into this like plot. I don't even want to say vortex. It kind of feels like I became that Claire Danes character in Homeland where all of a sudden I'm like off my meds and there is like all this string attached to the wall with tacks and whatever. It just didn't feel healthy for me. And it felt almost like inescapable. I couldn't get free of that way of thinking. And so that in part is why The Folded Clock I started writing that book actually just as an experiment or not even as a thing to publish. I just wanted to see what would happen if I tried to discover a new way to get from the beginning of something to the end of something. Like how could that structure or shape be different and not be involved in all of this like thumbtacks and string on a board, you know? And so that book, I will say, I have frequently talked about it as being like a mixed tape. I thought of it a lot about like building the sections as if I were making a mixed tape from way back when, where you kind of wanted to see how each new, you would sort of put the tracks down and then you'd play them back and you'd think, well, where do I want to go next? Like what emotion do I want to hit next? But I also sort of structured that book around a bike ride that I was taking at that time. So I would do this loop on this bike. And it had the same sort of uphill, downhill, uphill straight away. And that kind of got in my body a little bit. And I was thinking about that, this sort of like downhill, that variety of speed and effort, I think. And so with this book, 
I really felt that the structural principle on like the deepest possible level, I suppose, was tidal. It felt very much to me like I was in a tide cycle where sometimes you notice when it's out or it's in, and sometimes you're really paying very close attention and even anticipating when it's going to be high or low because it allows you different access to different places on the shore, beaches, islands, whatever. But sometimes it's just happening and you're not realizing it, but it's always happening. And so I guess that's a long way to say, I kind of feel like I'm trying to retrain myself and it really feels like a training process. Like it feels kind of like I'm training my body in a way to train my mind to enter a fictional space and be able to operate inside of it with a little less predetermination. That makes sense. And the title quality here, like, was that like an emotional element kind of coming in and out? Was that a, like an attention to a larger theme than kind of receding into like day-to-day life? Like, how were you conceiving of that structure here? Well, weirdly, I don't think that I did conceive of it. I think that that was maybe something that was operating more intuitively. And it was really only after the fact when I sat down to read the whole thing that I was like, oh, this is sort of how this is moving. And I do feel like that was very much like tides were so much a function of my childhood, literal tides. And I know that tides very quickly become metaphorical, but I do mean, I do mean them (laughs) in a literal sense. And, uh, I remember going to the Great Lakes for the first time. I was pretty old. I don't know how old I was, but I was maybe a teenager. And I remember being at the shore and it suddenly occurring to me that that water is always where it is, that it doesn't come and go, right? Because the tides in, in Maine where I grew up are very extreme. And I just, I couldn't get my head around that. Like it felt, it felt like a different way of understanding your place in the world, not just understanding this body of water. One of the things that occurs to me as you're talking about tides is that the beginning really surprised me. I think I didn't expect it to start with such almost like an overt evocation of death. You and your son go to this estate sale, garage sale, and you're kind of picking through the stuff that these people are selling off. And you're thinking about what you leave behind and you kind of, and what you will leave behind and how people will remember your presence here. And you kind of do that throughout the book. And I wonder if you could talk about starting on that point, because I think it preempts this tide back into disappearance and also leaving some stuff on shore. I'm making metaphorical. I'm sorry. I know it's literal. (laughs) No, it's, it's impossible not to. It's there for the service of us being able to make metaphors out of it. (laughs) Well, this might, in a way, tie back to all the questions that I didn't answer of yours. (laughs) So in terms of like what made me write this book and sort of what the process was like. So originally, this book was a very different book. Originally, it had a very provocative title. It was called How to Raise a Rapist. And I sold it in 20, I mean, now the years have all just mushed together. I suppose I sold it in 20, it was right before the Trump election. So it must've been 2015. So I sell this, Trump hasn't happened. Me too hasn't happened. And crucially, my son at that point was quite young. 
<laughs> and it was supposed to be, again, this sort of provocative almost, it was supposed to be a little bit of a provocative manifesto. And then Trump happened and Me Too happened. And all of these things that I was talking about, which to be honest, was none of these things were really being talked about. They were like these concerns that I had. They were very tied to this son that I had and the kind of information he was getting that felt to me to be very, how do I put this? The information that he was getting and it did not feel like there was a critical component to it. It felt very much part of the groundwater. And so suddenly nobody needed me to be bringing this to people's attention. Like it was very much in the world and very much part of the conversation. And so this didn't mean that I didn't want to still pursue this question that I had or this curiosity that I had or this uncertainty that I had. It just meant that I had to do it in a different way. Add to that the fact that I know it probably should have occurred to me at the time, but he was going to get older. <laughs> while I was writing this. And so that became this other really interesting evolution that I was kind of managing, I suppose. So the culture's evolving. And then also this person that I'm writing about is evolving and becoming more of an adult. And so things that I might have felt comfortable writing about him when he was much younger suddenly felt... I had a lot more hesitation about it. And so all of these things were, at the time, I would say it was not entirely pleasant, but in retrospect, it felt actually like such a live crucible in which to be creating a book. Like there was so much pressure from all sides and kind of very high stakes. And so, yeah, it was a real struggle to try to figure out how to structure this book, how to approach this book, what tone was correct. And to get back to what you just said about the very opening, I think what I ended up doing as I wrote subsequent drafts, that sort of overt interrogation that had started out as this sort of provocative manifesto type work, that if you think of these in terms of almost like volumes, right? The volume on that just continued to kind of lower. And then this other volume was raised. And that was the volume of, yes, this question is happening about how do you raise a son today? How do you deal with all of these messages? How do you let him have the space to figure this out for himself? And how do you step in and involve yourself in his formation of self? But then realizing that all of that was encased in these kind of much bigger, I don't even want to say questions. They were just feelings. They were just feelings, right? Loss, death, he's growing up. Yeah, letting things go. It seems like, you know, there's a sadness that any parent feels. And maybe we could talk about why later, but I'm curious, you know, like if you can locate that sadness, but there's a sadness that every parent feels watching a child grow up, you know, that I think that's pretty universal. But then in particular, you know, and I say this as a mother of a son, there's an anxiety, I think, that one may have with a son of what they'll become and what certain things that, you know, could be harmless 
such as a fascination with guns. I know for me, when my son wants to play with guns because of school shooters, because of like Columbine, it gets my hackles up. And then I can tell that he kind of recognizes that. And then we're in this dance of him provoking me and me, you know, reacting very strongly. And it's ridiculous. But, you know, I know lots of sensitive guys who played with guns when they were young and it's come to nothing. But it's that, what will he become that haunts boys in a way perhaps it doesn't with girls. And so that awareness of, you know, the pervasiveness of misogyny and then having a boy seems like this is, you know, a very rich territory and something that's not the sole focus of the book because there are these elements, other elements that you describe, but is a large focus of it. So I was, I was wondering if you could talk about that and how much you even feel maybe after having written this book and thinking these things through deeply that a parent has much control of those elements because as much as you kind of write about mothers being blamed for everything their children do, it's a nature versus nurture question and also kind of like a nurture versus culture question that we have no control over. I love nature versus culture. I think that's a really incredible way to phrase what definitely felt like a struggle for me or that he and I were sort of engaged in. I'm trying to think how to approach this first. Well, first, I guess I will say when you also just talked about the pervasiveness of misogyny, I think that's also why suddenly shifting the focus of the book away from this more how to raise a rapist kind of provocative space. That's a sort of cataclysmic way of framing, I think, what is in fact a much more almost quotidian cataclysm, which is pervasive misogyny. And how do you counteract or how do you even engage with let's say, a very young child coming home, bringing some misogynistic tidbits (laughs) along with him and presenting them in a very sort of naive way because he doesn't even understand what they mean and what he's saying. When I felt like I was trying to control him, that felt like the least generative space to be in with him. And I very quickly started to retool my approach And because I realized how threatened I felt by certain things that he brought home. And it was really hard for me not to project back onto him actually a little bit of judgment, a little bit of like really negative energy that was just mystifying to him because he had no idea what he was even saying. And so I instead started to reconfigure our relationship and our conversations around these topics as well, what am I curious about in this moment? Like, what am I genuinely curious about? And what does he have the answers to that I don't have? And what are the questions I can ask him in order to access the answers that I'm so curious about? And so once I started to approach things that way, where I saw him as being somebody who had knowledge that I wanted access to instead of me having the knowledge that I wanted him to have, that he might not have even been old enough to kind of contain in any useful way. Suddenly that made the entire project just feel less threatening, less risky, and also frankly, like a collaboration. Let's talk a little bit about how you grew up and your parents. You grew up in Maine. There was a boat involved. (laughs) 
Can you tell us, just talk a little bit about how your childhood has, as you think, shaped this understanding of, of how you also might be approaching your children? Well, I think as a child of the 70s, 80s, there was definitely not a lot of attention paid <laughs> to us. <laughs> and um, in a way that I actually really appreciate, I never felt uncared for or unloved, but I definitely felt like there was a lot of space. And I felt as though there was trust, I suppose. There was trust in me and maybe trust in the world too, rightly or wrongly, that I would be able to experiment and find my way without a lot of harm coming to me. And so I think I actually really didn't realize how much I valued that until I started to parent myself. Well, I guess I would talk a little bit maybe to talk about the boat that my family had growing up and how that was both space and not space, how that kind of really literalized the closeness and claustrophobia of a family. So it was a 32-foot wooden boat that was frequently leaking. The engine was always broken. And so whenever we went out on it for our vacation, which is what we did every summer, we would take two weeks and just go up and down the coast. And it was frequently so foggy that you didn't see anything. And your cereal was wet and your clothing was wet and your sleeping bag was wet. Everything was wet. Like you just were wet for two weeks. And you just could not escape these people. Like you literally couldn't escape them. <laughs> they were, and they were never more than 32 feet. They were never even 32 feet away from you. And so I, I felt like that again, kind of literalized this family dynamic. I feel like it put us into these situations where I saw my parents making mistakes. That's probably what I would say about why that way of growing up became very influential in terms of how I think about my role right now. Mistakes were made all the time. My parents ran into ledges one time very dramatically. We were with a bunch of very elderly relatives in our boat. And my mother, who is usually very on it, she just misjudged. There was essentially two sets of rocks and she thought she was on the outside the second set, but she was in fact between the two. And we hit so hard that we jumped up and over and into the middle of this ledge. And again, this is where tides are so important. So if you run aground and the tide is going out, you have to wait for the tide to go all the way out and then come all the way back up again and then lift you off. And if the tide is coming up, then you have to wait, you know, quite a bit less time in order to be free. And so I just remember this happened and we have all of these old relatives on board and it was just like, fine. There was no blame. No one yelled at anybody. And then they just had to sort of kick into gear, like figure out what the tide was doing. What's the wind doing? What are the currents doing? My dad rode out with an anchor and set it so that we would like stay stable. And I think just watching them deal with these unpredictable circumstances and to also allow us to be with them while we were encountering the unknown <laughs> with them, you know? So they never appeared to me as these people who knew everything. Instead, they appeared to me as people who would frequently be 
in situations that they didn't expect themselves to be in and they didn't exactly know how to get out of that situation, but I saw them figuring it out. The lack of blame there is is really remarkable, I think, because it's so easy for people to get mad at each other for the situation they're in, right? That's like a classic hallmark in, in my family, perhaps. Well, there might have been blame after the fact, but like in the moment, I think what's sort of great about moments that are that sort of, you have to make some very fast decisions. Blame is really low on the list of things that have to happen in that moment. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Heidi Julevitz, author of Directions to Myself. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. have John Yao on the line. John Yao is a poet and art critic, and his latest book is called Please Wait by the Coat Room, Reconsidering Race and Identity in American Art. And John is here to give us a book recommendation. The book I want to recommend is Ghost Music by An Yu, and it was published in 2022. And she also wrote Braised Pork, which I'm just about to start, but Ghost Music is a book everybody should read. Tell me all about it. I've never heard of it. What kind of book is it? It's the story of a woman who's a concert pianist who gives up her life to teach music to children. She's married. And one day she discovers or someone sends her a box of mushrooms and she doesn't know what it has to do with or why who sent it, except the person who sent it was a musician, a pianist she admires who had disappeared 10 years earlier. So then it goes on from there. There's a, an encounter with a talking mushroom. There's all sorts of strange encounters in the book. And yet somehow it's all believable in some way that she writes. That's, that's a kind of amazing. The book is very austerely written. And I was just completely hooked by it. I mean, I started it on an airplane and I didn't want a, the airplane to land because I wanted to finish the book. She's a really, really wonderful writer. And I had not heard of her. I read a review somewhere. I had braised pork on my shelf, but somehow I hadn't read it. Then I saw a review of her second book, bought it in Los Angeles, decided I have to read this, and then read it. Is she an American writer? She was born in Beijing. She studied writing, creative writing at NYU, and I think she currently lives in Hong Kong. She writes in English. And these mushrooms that she gets, are they magic mushrooms? They're all different kinds. And she knows a lot about cooking them. That becomes part of it. Her mother-in-law, who stays with her, tells her about why certain mushrooms come from Yunnan and some come from another place and what they need. So it's a kind of, you know, like Moby Dick, you learn how to cut up the whale. You learn how to cut. I mean, I thought maybe she this is the way to cook these mushrooms, some of which I've never heard of. I mean, morels and chanterelles, okay, but there are other mushrooms that were Asian mushrooms that I literally know nothing about. I thought, I think I'm going to have to look these up and see if I can cook some, or if I can find some to cook. So there's another reason to read the book if you like mushrooms. Educational byproduct, that sounds yeah, great. exactly, exactly. But no magic mushrooms? No. Okay, well, that book sounds great. Please tell me the title and the author one more time. Okay, it's Ghost Music, 
And it's by Anyu, A-N-Y-U. Great. Thank you so much, John. Okay, thank you. Take care. Have a great day. That was John Yao. His new book is Please Wait by the Coat Room, Reconsidering Race and Identity in American Art. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Heidi Julevitz, author of Directions to Myself. I mean, speaking of blame or anger or kind of aggrievousness, I feel like this is a really feminist book in a lot of ways. And it, there's a lot of analysis of misogyny and also just kind of like every an everyday misogyny, really like pinpoint analysis of it. But at the same time, you know, it's a book about motherhood that is not about the plight of motherhood exactly. It's, and it's kind of approaching parenting from a less gendered space. And as someone who has written a lot about parenting, maybe not being a mother, I'm wondering if there are kind of like tropes, especially in memoir of mothering that annoy you. I remember reading a profile that you did of Rachel Cusk and you mentioning a life's work and maybe not loving it. But if there are ways that people write about motherhood, increasingly so perhaps, that turn you off or that you were thinking, you know, that you wanted to work against here in any way, just kind of like taking the gender quality out of parenting, if that's possible. I mean, I guess what I would say to that is that, well, maybe one of the ways that I am able perhaps to remove gender from my representation of my maternal experience is that I actually have a partner who really does half the work, or actually I would say maybe more like 70% of the work. And so so I think certain grievances or resentments or obstacles to me doing what I want to do because I am a mother, those don't exist for me. And so I just think I need to like state that as I'm very aware of that being the circumstances under which I think I can maybe have a more neutral take perhaps. But I guess what I wanted, the things that maybe I hadn't seen that I maybe wanted to be in the world a little bit were two things. And maybe these are kind of the same thing, but I guess I frequently see or read work where motherhood and the artist are pitted against each other. And again, I recognize why in many cases that's just the reality because people aren't in relationships with partners who are willing to share the work with them. And so it really is an either or proposition. But I sometimes feel like to think of one's existence that way hits you against yourself kind of no matter what. It's like your body and your mind are seen as being enemies of themselves. And so I guess I wanted to represent maybe an experience where that binary wasn't activated, that I didn't see time that I wasn't able to write as being because I had these people to care for, that the emotional attachments that I have in my life were not costing me as an artist. And I, in fact, kind of wanted to represent how those emotional experiences in my life, those responsibilities I have to other people, how that was actually feeding me as an artist. And I think maybe I haven't seen that represented so much, maybe for all of the reasons I've already stated, that people haven't been in a domestic situation that's enabled that to be true. 
But I also think, and maybe this gets back to an earlier question that I didn't respond to, maybe about like the emotional aspects of this book and why I wrote it and and things that surprised me while I was writing it. This sounds very naive, but I think that I had this idea that the people who missed their children when their children grew up were people who didn't have other things in their lives that they cared about as much as their children. And so I really thought that because I have this career that being an artist means so much to me, that I've dedicated so much of my life to it, that my children could be in my life and then not be in my life. And that wouldn't really impact me because I had dedicated my life as well to this other pursuit. And so I think it really took me unawares that I could love this other thing so much. I could love being an artist and a writer so much. And I could still be absolutely devastated by the fact of my children growing up and not needing me in the same way anymore and not being as close to me anymore. That is actually, I think, something I don't imagine I'll ever get over. I referenced this earlier, so I guess this is the time to ask again about it. So is that the aspect of them growing up that's the most painful thing for you? Is that you feel like you're growing further apart for them? They don't need you in the same way? Um, Is that if you could pinpoint it, the thing, or is there something else as well? Well, actually, it's kind of selfish. (laughs) Um, I feel like I discovered through having small children, maybe the best version of myself. And without them, I don't really have access to that person anymore. And that person to me is someone who makes games out of everything that just really loves to play. The kind of creativity that I feel was required, well, not required of me, the kind of creativity that I was inspired to generate just by having to entertain people. I mean, I was trying to think the other day of the stories. I would tell multi-chapter stories. I would make up these games. Some of them are in the book, but, you know, make up games where like (laughs) you'd be lying in the bed and with the tops of your feet, you'd have to land this pig on top of a bookshelf or, you know, just things like that. But not only could I spend hours doing them, the challenge of having to kind of split open the day and make it exciting I felt that that challenge brought out the best version of me. And now that it's just me who I have to entertain, I'm having a hard time feeling as creatively charged now that it's just me again. That's also why I was kind of surprised to hear you say that you were struggling with plot when you had sort of started to nonfiction because so much of this book is you telling stories to the kids. Some of them are non-fictional stories that you fictionalize a little bit or you you structure them in a way that makes them more exciting and a little maybe more scary. <laughs> but you are, in terms of like generating plot, you're constantly doing it. You sort of do it for them all the time in a way that makes a drive more interesting. It makes a sleepover maybe more scary. <laughs> so to me, it seems like sort of like an instinctive thing that you're that you just do and the kids the kids provide a sort of audience but readers are audiences you know I mean they're obviously different in terms of the feedback that you get but yeah kids are way more critical (laughs) 
<laughs> they really are. They're just like, that's boring. Why would I actually did have this joke that I would tell my students for a while, which I actually is not even a joke when I can't remember how old my daughter was. She's pretty young. She was like six or seven or eight or whatever. And I was trying to figure out this plot element to this book. Actually, she must've been much younger because that book came out when she was four. She must've been like four, you know? And I would say, okay, so a person does this and then they do this and then they do this. And, and she just stopped me and she was like, why would they do that? <laughs> and I suddenly was like, oh yeah, why would they do that? And actually I had a, I ran a plot past my son the other day, a novel that I was trying to think about writing. And I said, okay, so here's the setup. And then this, and then this, and he had the same thing where he just said, well, I don't understand why a person would ever do that, right? And that doesn't mean that he's right, I'm wrong, but I do feel like there is a, as an audience, children are actually quite harsh critics. And so I guess I do, in fact, do a lot of quote unquote writing by telling them stories and getting their feedback. That is a really interesting observation. You know, I think part of how stories function in this book is that I think I'm becoming wary, or I would even say in the book, I am warily repeating stories that I've heard. I am, I'm warily introducing my children to stories that I read when I was younger. I'm taking a step back a little bit and wondering like, okay, wait a minute, what is this story actually saying? What sort of dynamics, especially gender dynamics, are operational in this story? And do I want to be telling these stories anymore? And so I think that stories do feature quite predominantly in this book, but they are, they're always being presented as, I tell the stories as a way to interrogate the story and to wonder if they're worth telling anymore. The section um, where all the boys are sleeping over and you tell them the zombie story Seem like, okay, you have a situation that you don't know really how to address head on. So you decide to address it with a story and kind of make them reflexively understand something perhaps that they're missing in the actual event in their lives, which is like talking really negatively about this girl. But in that story, there's some, there's a line, you know, that's really poignant to me for the whole book is like where you tell them the scary zombie story and then they're like, but zombies are also victims, right? And you say, yeah, exactly. Like zombies are victims first, monsters second. Maybe that's a bastardization, but something like that. And it seems to me like that as the mother of a son, the concept of like men being monsters, you know, might be complicated and take the lines more of that. I mean, I don't think the book comes down lightly on men who do egregious things, but at the same time, how can you not have the perspective of these men as having been children? And you seem to posit that, I think, here. And I'm wondering, just there's some irreconcilability also with the way you describe these men and the things they've done, or men that you knew who also did awful things. But in particular, just the fact that all these men were young boys, you know, and I wonder if that shapes the way you see like this current post me to landscape at all. It's such a hard question, right? Because I think that I'm made to think actually of the movie Women Talking. When you ask that question, I start to think this flashed into my mind. Have either of you seen that movie by any chance? 
Is it also a book? It's also a book, which is like the greatest book. The book and the movie are both differently great. But in the movie, it's all women talking. It's like, (laughs) it is what it says it is. (laughs) But they're all sitting around like in a hayloft. And essentially there's the men of the colony, of this Mennonite colony, have been raping, drugging and raping the women at night. And there's a moment when they have to decide if these women are going to leave the colony, can they take their sons with them or not? Like at what point did the sons transition from being innocent children and potential victims of a way of thinking? And when do they become essentially perpetrators, like possible threats? And so they decide amongst them at the age of 14, that that's the age when, if I'm not misremembering, but they pick an age where they say, if you have children under this age, sons, you may bring them. And over this age, you may not. And in the movie, this really incredible montage where even though the movie is just these women basically in this hayloft having this conversation, suddenly there is a montage of all these close-ups of these young boys' faces. And it almost is asking you to, and they're not clearly presented. They're at that sort of in-between space where you kind of can't tell. Are they looking at you sort of defiantly or do they still have that sort of malleable young boy openness to their face? And I guess that also maybe makes me think a little bit about the sections in the book when I talk about the Annunciation paintings and Gabriel the Angel and how so many of those Gabriel faces are they kind of terrify me, actually. I don't know how closely you've been looking at Annunciation paintings recently, but there is this blankness to his expression oftentimes that I find so, so unsettling. And I think that Gabriel also is in that sort of in-between space, right? Like sort of still a young boy, but also like God is telling him what to do (laughs) and he's just going to go do it. And he's going to kind of freak this poor woman out (laughs) in in her house. So, and I I guess another part in the book where maybe this comes up is when the mother of the Stanford swimmer, she wrote to the sentencing judge and the letter just sort of devolves into why, why, why? And I really, in the book, I talk about this, but in real life, I, I looked at that question that she was asking and just thinking, who is she asking that question to? And at a certain point, I thought, oh, she's asking her son that question. Like, why? (laughs) Why did you become this person? And I just think that that's actually what makes all of this so devastating. I do want to hear a little bit about what you think, because I think so much of this book, when it thinks about these questions, it's personal. It's about this relationship between a child and a parent or a child and friends. You have that specter of culture and it enters within that personal relationship, but much of the focus is personal. And it seems like at the periphery, though, all the time is various institutional powers. There's the university, there's, you have drinks with a friend and she's an HR person. And so there's always a kind of institutional presence, but you you don't quite rely on that. I wonder how you think about those institutional intrusions or presences within this kind of dynamic But also, if I think about institution and 
one thing that it can offer is a sense of depersonalization, relief of personal responsibility, hope or faith that it will somehow do right by the situation or by the people involved. That's very hard to do, I think, particularly when you're dealing with institutions like colleges and universities. But I wonder how you think about them within this context. I guess I would say within this context, I was trying maybe not to rely on the institution or I was wondering about how the institution is not just deciding in terms of specific cases, like is someone guilty or not? Is someone telling the truth or not? But the institution in making a decision allows everybody else to sort of stop thinking about something. It allows you to stop interrogating what is typically a pretty complex situation. For example, with that scene with the friend of mine who is put in a situation where she's trying to make sense of the fact that this person who she was really close with, a young man, was accused of sexually assaulting a woman. And she never disbelieved the woman. She just couldn't figure out how to understand this man, given this new information she had about him. And she then engages in a quite extensive set of questions. Like if you take credit for a child, must you also take the blame for a child? But she engages in the question. She allows this to be a very uncomfortable space and she stays there. And I would say when institutions, and they must, obviously, it's part of what they do. They have to make decisions, right? But if you as the person who might be just collaterally involved, if you allow that decision to stop your process of thinking about something, that is, I think, my my problem with institutions maybe in the context of this book is that I didn't want an institution to resolve something to such a degree that I didn't continue to think about everything. Now that time has passed since you wrote this book and your son and daughter are both older, but maybe particularly your son, what it's like to kind of read it back, to compare this point at the end of his childhood, you know, that you were taking 10 as the end of childhood. Now he's considerably older, I would imagine. So what does the past, speaking of, and I love the motif throughout of kind of like moving forward by recognizing the past as a way of moving through the water. But now that you're in that stage here and you have this book, what does this look like to you? What does the future look like to you based on what you've written? Well, for one thing, I would say when I look back on this book and, you know, I had to read it aloud for my audiobook, and I've never had to do that before. And wow, there is never an opportunity like that <laughs> to really be like, oh, this is what I wrote and it's being published. It's done. You know, there is no changing any of it. I felt this peace, I think, is what I felt actually, because as I said before, I, I had been sort of in this crucible of sort of differently risky elements pushing in. And I thought, oh, this book to me now feels like, it kind of feels like that old chest that I describe in the book that is in my barn. And I move it around when I clean the barn and it doesn't even belong to me. It belonged to a former owner. And like every once in a while, 
we open it up and we see what's in there. And I think that this book feels like that to me. It feels like I will want to open it up and it is, it's like a trunk full of mementos or it's like a photo album or something. I feel like it really represents a time in my life. It represents the thinking I was doing and it represents what I was feeling and how thoughts and feeling are really one leads to the other. And so it's a record of that. Thank you, Heidi, so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for asking such incredible questions. That was Heidi Julevitz. Her new book is called Directions to Myself, a memoir of four years. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.